this is our, our last session here, so I don't want anybody to miss out on asking their most important questions. So, you know, don't be shy. Yes, Bob. I'd like to go back to the 10 fetters, and I have a question, and especially relating to a short passage in the life of the Buddha. Yeah. The, uh, the, the third fetter, wrongful um, adherence to life, rituals, and ceremonies. Um, there's this. Uh, short passage on uh, page 196 of the Life of the Buddha, and there was a um, uh, a venerable Nanda who was the son of the Blessed one time, was there with, uh, with the Buddha and, and the others. Um, he was handsome, inspiring faith and confidence, and he was four finger breadths shorter than the Blessed One. He used to wear a robe of the same measurement as the Sublime One's robe, and when the elder bhikkhus saw the Venerable Nanda coming in the distance, they mistook him for the Blessed One, and so they rose from their seats. But when he arrived, they found out their mistake. They disapproved, and they murmured and protested, how can the Venerable Nanda wear a robe of the same measurements as the Sublime One's robe? They told the Blessed One, he rebuked the Venerable Nanda, and he made the training rule any bhikkhu who should wear a robe of the measurement of the Sublime One's robe commits an offense involving expiation. Well, as soon as I read that, my first reaction was that uh, the elder bhikkhus were um, wrongfully adhering to ritual and, but I thought there must be a reason for this, or otherwise it wouldn't have shown up here. And, you know, I've, I've thought about it since, and I just wonder if, if you could talk about the, uh, the proper role of, of ritual briefly. Um, the proper role of ritual, yes. Um, the role that ritual plays... Uh, once again, taking into account our nature uh, as human beings, and this is something that uh, I think you all know, and certainly we know by reflecting on the behavior of people across all cultures, is that rituals and ceremonies have powerful effects on our current, our present state of consciousness. And so they can be used as, as tools to cultivate uh, to deliberately cultivate uh, desirable states of consciousness or altered states of consciousness that can be used in a particular way. So this would be an appropriate use. So, uh, you know, the process of bowing to Buddha images and bowing to teachers could be regarded as a ritual, could be regarded, uh, you know, and it is by, by some people, they look and say, I'd never do that. But the purpose of bowing is not, is not that you uh, are worshipping or, you know, the purpose is, is, is not the effect that it has on the Buddha image, because it's not having any effect on the Buddha image. 
And it's not the effect that it has on the teacher, because it's not the only effect it's going to have on the teacher is going to depend on to what degree the teacher is still, you know, attached to their ego self-image. The importance of bowing is the effect it has on the person who does the bowing. It is their inner acknowledgement of the teaching, expression of respect, and uh, and a sort of act of submitting themselves to the teaching uh, and to the value of the teaching. And do you see what I'm saying? All rituals are like that. You know, the uh, Catholic High Mass. Uh, the value of any ritual is in the the effects it has on the person who is carrying out the ritual. And it can be used in that way in very positive ways. But what is being, uh, what falls away with the stream entrance is the superstitious beliefs that we have that the rituals themselves have some sort of power in and of themselves, some kind of power other than what we do with them, because you can go through, you can go through rituals mechanically, and if you believed in the other power of the ritual, you might think that well, it doesn't matter that you know I'm not really developing any inner uh, sense of a, a feeling and commitment to the the portions of the ritual, as long as I perform it outwardly uh, to to the right degree, then it's going to have the effect it's supposed to, and that's a belief in the ritual has some power in itself, or there's some power, other power that is being invoked by the ritual. But if you recognize that, for example, doing uh, uh, doing preliminaries to your meditation practice, if you do it and you're not fully present, you might as well not have bothered doing it. On the other hand, if you're fully present, it helps you to get into the right frame of mind and to cultivate the right attitudes uh, and to, you know, it, it has an effect on you. And doing it once a day before you meditate is going to have a powerful cumulative effect. But it's not the power of the ritual itself. And even rituals can be done externally or they can be done internally. A person, the same power can, that the, the true power that a ritual has, which is the effect that it has on the mind that's performing the ritual can can happen internally as well. There's a lot of attachment to external signs, external appearances. And that particular sutra, um, what I see in that, you know, uh, uh, is that uh, uh, there's a certain degree of attachment to external signs in there. And without analyzing and going into it, well, uh, probably I, I'll just assume that the the elder bhikkhus and the Buddha himself saw a certain advantage for some people in the maintenance of these external signs. So, I also it, it reminds me of something that I I read or heard, and I'm not sure whether it was Jack Cornfield. He, he was he was served in a monastery, didn't he? Yes. Yeah. Well, he was talking about the uh, the ritual of bowing and the, the hierarchy within the monastery. Yes. But he also brought up, up something that that uh, that I I found very useful. Uh, 
meditation um, when, um, and not necessarily only in meditation, but when the uh, endless bombardment of uh, thoughts come pouring down upon the, uh, the, the meditation, he said, well, you know, I, I bow before these thoughts that are coming and, and not, um, not try to resist them because uh, the, the image I got was, was Br'er Rabbit and the Tar Baby. Uh, the more you resist them, the more engaged you become in them. And, and yeah. so that, uh, I, I, I use, use that as, as uh, to, to, to try to deal with, uh, mm -hmm. with those thoughts when they come in. Yes, I bow before the uh, thoughts that are coming, they're going to come, and uh, the, the less I resistively engage them, the, then they have a chance to go by. And yes. Exactly. That's very good. I, I like the analogy of Brer Rabbit and Tarvey. That works really well. <laughs> yeah, that, that is very good. And... Uh, what you're saying reminded me of another story that uh, I heard. I don't know whether it was from Jack Cornfield or one of the other IMS people, but it was about their experience when they first when they first went into they first took robes and went into the monastery for uh, the prolonged retreat. And uh, what they observed was all the monks at the meal time. All the monks would line up for the opportunity to wash the feet of the master. And the person telling the story, I don't know if it's Jack or not, but the person telling the story said, how disgusting they found that. And they said to themselves, I'm never going to do that. Right. <laughs> and I guess this went on for a week, but over the course of the week, uh, basically, they started out with also the sort of resi the resistance, you know, to every part of the teaching that I'm going to take this part, I'm not going to take that part. I like that, I don't like that. I don't need to do that. But in the course of the week, they underwent a change such that by the end of the week, there was one more monk lining up to wash the feet mm -hmm. of the master. <laughs> and this was this was the whole this this was very symbolic of the total surrender to the teaching of giving up that place of being, well, I'm the one that's going to judge what's what's appropriate to do and what's not appropriate to do, and surrendering to the teacher so as to get the full benefit of it. So, yeah. That's a nice little note on rites and rituals. They have their place, but it's the superstitious belief in the power of them, that other power. talked about earlier today a little bit, but there's a paragraph in here um, on your handout on page 16. And I have that question about functioning in the world. That paragraph says the point is that there never has been either an actual I or a constructed sense of I behind any volition or intention. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about that paragraph a little bit? Mm -hmm. Well, yes, the point that I'm trying to make is is 
we have this feeling that I am making decisions and I am deciding to do actions. And that is that is an error. That is something that you can experience directly in meditation is that the intentions arise as though by themselves, some from some mysterious place that is not directly accessible to consciousness. And then you can have the, the, the tangible experience of your sense of I saying, oh, I decided that, you know, appropriating it after the fact. That the sense of I and the constructed ego, both, neither one of them lies behind the intention. Rather, they appropriate the intention after it has arisen. And this is what's confusing when we first are confronted with the idea that uh, the self we think we are is an illusion. Because, well, I'm used to being the one that makes the decisions and uh, decides what I'm going to do and you know makes one choice over another and starts to do one thing and then decides to do something else. And that's not what's actually taking place. And what's really interesting is that this has been demonstrated in the laboratory, you know, with some simple experiments where looking at the actual timing of brain activity and the timing at which a person becomes aware, decides that I, I have consciously decided to do this action. And they compare those and they find that they that the uh, researcher looking at the electroencephalograph knows before the person does, what they're going to decide and when they're going to do it. So what happens is, is it just exactly as I said, a part of the brain, a part of the mind that is not conscious, has processed the information, come up with the conclusion, I'm going to do this at this time. And then the conscious awareness doesn't get the message until after it's already been decided. But the conscious awareness thinks it's making the decision. Isn't that amazing? I mean, it is. It is astounding. And it, it's, uh, this is something that you find in meditation. You, in, in, in deep state of mindfulness meditation, watching yourself, especially if you're doing something like walking meditation, but it happens in sitting meditation, we're always generating attentions. But when you start watching really closely, you see the intention comes up and it comes from nowhere. And the, it, it emerges into consciousness. And then from within consciousness, it gets appropriated to a self that carries out the action. And I just loved it so much when I saw that this had been demonstrated to happen in the laboratory. That there's a good half second or more before the person thinks they've decided to do something that some unconscious process has already made the decision. And this bears on something else, you know. Where does the decision come from? Well, we have all of this accumulated conditioning. So, an event happens. A circumstance arises. There's some sensory input comes in. It gets processed by these different parts of the brain. It gets analyzed. It gets interpreted. And then, based on past conditioning and past experience, unconsciously, the brain says, oh, this is how I should feel about this. And this is the kind of action should I, t- I should take. And that comes into consciousness. 
And then that part of ourselves, the I-making part of ourselves, says, oh, well, this happened to me, and I felt like that, and I decided to do this. But it's all an illusion. And that's what I mean when I say that there never has been either an actual I or even a constructed sense of I behind any volition or intention. Because the constructed sense of I has come after the fact. And that last sentence is amazing. Yes. (laughs) That's right. Neither any worldling nor any Buddha has ever acted out of volitional mind state that had an I behind it. And so you're not giving anything up. (laughs) (laughs) And so often teachers talk about intention and then I, I guess I'm sort of wondering how that relates over on the preceding page mm-hmm. when it talks about there is no mystery about the causes and conditions. Right effort is the application of mindful awareness and the cultivation of intention. And mm-hmm. then it goes on. So it, That's right, yes. <laughs> so what I'm saying there is that the intentions that are going to rise in you tomorrow are the ones that are cultivated today. And how are they cultivated? They're cultivated by putting yourself in a position to hear the kinds of teachings and to have the kinds of thoughts. And to, you know, it's not a you that's creating those intentions, but in the unfolding process that is your five aggregates as it accumulates the right experiences by putting yourself in in the right circumstances then then the conditioning takes place and the intentions develop and uh, in this whole process you know we we need to talk in terms of well i i i do this i I associate with uh, noble companions, I listen to Dharma talks, uh, I reflect on the teachings, I practice mindfulness and everything else. But in another sense, that what we could look at is that, um, that this process that is taking place that tells its own story as being an I. can create its destiny through the interaction of its parts. And it does. But there's no I that's behind it. It's uh, it's a collective process of independent mental processes interacting with each other and acting together. There is a mental process which will formulate an intention and and hold on to it. And then there's other mental processes which might disagree with that or formulate different intentions or decide to go along with that intention. But there's no I in there. And most of the time when there is any sort of conscious decision-making process, what's happened are there are different mental processes which have taken the current information and arrived at different conclusions as to what's the appropriate decision to make. And uh, the end result 
is going to be uh, it's going to be a combination of uh, which one the collective goes along with, which one is stronger, or which other mental processes with intentions that either reinforce or negate the others that come up. So, for example, somebody says, would you like vanilla ice cream or dog food? <laughs> Instant decision, right? Mm-hmm. There's only the only mental, all of the mental processes that are involved in any part of that intention generation all agree that, you know, vanilla ice cream, not dog food. On the other hand, somebody says, would you like super creamy uh, Haagen-Dazs vanilla ice cream, or I have a low-calorie, healthy mango sorbet? Then you find this actual, well, let's see, be better for me, low cholesterol, right? And sooner or later, one of them will win out. Um, not because there's two struggling with each other, it's also partly because there's a whole collective of processes going on and, and eventually you're going to come to kind of a consensus agreement and you're going to act. So, do you see what I'm saying there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I find that um, being able to get in touch with that is liberating. It is liberating. It's very liberating. Yeah. And the other thing that that sort of echoed in my mind as we were discussing that. I heard a teacher once talking about all the different Buddhas that mm-hmm. existed and said that the Buddha of the future is the Sangha. And I think that resonates with what you've been saying and just said in a lot of ways, that it is a collective energy that we are, by removing all of the obstacles and things that you were talking about, that we're more available to be in that flow. I love that way of putting it, yes. The Buddha of the future is Sangha. Yeah. And, and yeah. that kind of reminds me of your question yesterday, Brian, which I don't know whether I adequately addressed or not, but you know, yesterday you said, well, I've examined and found there's no self, but I don't see any particular reason why that means that the, the no self that I am is a part of a whole, right? Yeah. But we don't need to think in absolute terms. Certainly in relative terms, though. Don't you see, you know, uh, you all, don't you all see that it is so much better to regard yourself? I mean, this is all a part of seeing yourself and others and so forth like that. And it doesn't have to be an absolute truth. But in terms of a Buddha in the future, in terms of your own enlightenment, in terms of bringing all beings to enlightenment, the more that you can think less of I am a separate self. I mean, me as a separate self, I could never bring all sentient beings to awakening. Oh, defeated before I begin. I'm not even going to bother thinking about it. But if we're all one, and if the whole is moving in that direction inexorably with a force that uh, is is just you know cannot be resisted. If if the Buddha of the future is us, then all oh, it then it's so easy for me to work in the service of that process and to make the changes that I need to make and you know, live the kind of life that I need to, to live. So, 
it may not be, you know, in, in some perfect ultimate analysis, it doesn't need to be true. But if you can choose to go in that direction, you know, if you can choose to let it be in that way, it it serves it serves the goal that we've taken. You know, after all, it's all empty. Who are all these sentient beings anyway? <laughs> uh, or as the Heart Sutra says, you know, uh, no this, no that, no nothing. Nobody be awakened. You know. But it doesn't mean that we stop doing what we do in the moment. And uh, it doesn't mean that we need to weigh our actions against what we can conceive of as the result of them. So, thank you for that. Can I add one more thing on that? Um, The other thing that, um, that I was pondering a little bit is you've referred again and again to the only thing that is real is change. I want to tackle that one. <laughs> okay, I'm not great. So sure about that one. Right. <laughs> and I don't, you know, it doesn't really matter, but mm-hmm. I was curious about it. Because what some other people have said is that our true self that we're looking for is there, so we're just removing things. So I think in the world and even in our development, it's sort of that process also of just getting out of the way, mm-hmm. going with the flow, uh, and that the change is is a perception that, uh, and, and also the linear aspect of it, I'm not so um, clear about or convinced mm-hmm. about either, that it's a progressive change that in a linear way, mm-hmm. that, that, that that is part of ultimate reality. Well, actually what is said about ultimate reality is, uh, or, oh, sorry, I repeat the question. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so... It's about change, and uh, you've said that the that I've said the only thing that's real is change, uh, and then you related that to ultimate reality. And let, let me clarify that a little bit from the perspective of relative reality that we live in. In other words, in terms of what we experience. One of the characteristics of all phenomenal experience is change, absolutely, and inevitability of change. We construct that idea. Well, that is the nature of phenomenal experience. Yes, phenomenal experience is a construct of the mind. But the nature of what the mind constructs constructs is constantly changing. Ultimate reality, what's said about ultimate reality, though, is it is uncreated, unchanging, and unceasing. So that's quite quite different. Okay. Now let me take this, see if I can pick up the other loose ends in your question and, and tie it together. You were saying that one of the views is that... Uh, Our true self is something that we need to get out of the way of, and that's very uh, that's very similar to saying that 
we have the Buddha nature, and what we need to do is remove all the defilements and the afflictions and get the illusory self out of the way for that Buddha nature to uh, be perfectly revealed, to be realized. Uh, and that's that's very true. Now, as this relates to change and to the timelessness of ultimate reality, um, in Buddhism, the Buddha nature, uh, the the mind, uh, the enlightened mind of the Buddha or the Dharmakaya, Nirvana emptiness, all of these different words are referring to the same thing, to ultimate truth, the nature of which is timeless and therefore without beginning, without change, and without without end. And so, yes, the Buddha nature, as one of our ways of talking about ultimate reality, is absolutely changeless. It's unconditioned and uh, it is not subject to change. But all of the stuff that covers it over is made up of the stuff of change. So, so these these things are, are not in conflict with each other. Okay? They're in agreement. Yes? Oh, I'm just, there was one more section that she uh, talked about it happening in a linear fashion. Oh, the, line, the linear, yeah, I, I'm sorry, I, th- I think the reason that I neglected that is I didn't quite get it. Maybe you could speak a little more about Yesterday, someone in this room mentioned our knowing and our path as being recursive, maybe, yeah. as opposed to linear. Um, and I've noticed, and this is this is totally my my dual brain, mm-hmm. my brain working in duality here. But I've noticed that um, the Buddhist traditional teachings are mainly a male lineage, um, <laughs> even though the Buddha was very you know open to um, females and women being involved in it. And what you've been um, guiding us in your teachings for so long is, you know, knowing how this mind works and and ex- accepting that and working with it, not being resistant to it. And I do find that um, my mind as a woman and a lot of women I know, we do have a mind that um, it works in a more recursive way where things are circular, where things are sort of cluster related relationally and not so much um, a linear progression mm-hmm. on the path. Um, so I don't know if that's what you were... Well, I'm curious, I'm just, yeah, mm-hmm. I'm curious, because mm-hmm. we did touch a little bit yeah. on that. Well, it seems to me that men's and women's minds both were very much recursively and uh, in terms of clusters and and there's a whole holistic side to that. Um, I think the main difference is in our way of, uh, in the emphasis we put on things and our way of expressing them. Because women's mind, as much as men, recognize uh, 
even though not necessarily linearly, that there is a progressive transformation within the dimension of time. And I'm not sure of that. You're not sure no, of that? I'm not. I'm, um, not sure that, that, I'm not sure that a lot of human minds do. Um, and I'm not, I'm not saying that really in a critical way. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that, that it, it's just something to be aware of mm-hmm. um, when we're interacting with others. Maybe they're not. But wherever I look, my mind is able to recognize the, that in the dimension of time that there is this, uh, there is a, an arrow of time and that there are, that over segments of time uh, there are what you could call progressive changes that go in the direction of, of the arrow. Um, maybe Maybe I only see that because my mind's conditioned to see that. I think that is the dominant paradigm. But I think there are lots of energies and people that are sort of at the margin of that. And and that quite a bit of the struggle with the path Mm -hmm. can be that. And and I'm not saying any good, Mm -hmm. bad, right, wrong. I'm just saying that that does seem to be how energy is organized Mm -hmm. in some I think that that's that's a very reasonable thing, maybe a very important thing to to look at more closely. Because yes, all of these Dharma teachings that we have uh, are predominantly from men, that's true. And even the minority that are from women are from women who are deeply embedded in the uh, male Dharma culture. And so even though they may reflect a lot of linear thinking, maybe that's that's acquired. Now I, I, I do I I do think that all minds share the same kind of processes. And but at the same time I I do agree with you that some are on one end of the spectrum and some are at the other end of the spectrum. But yes, to the degree that excessive linearity and the expression of the Dharma is an obstacle to people, uh, to any people, then that's something that needs to be looked at and, and addressed. Um, and perhaps within the accumulated literature of spiritual teachings that already has been and, and could be drawn upon to do that even more so. And if you're somebody that is sensitive to that, then you'd be a really good person to put some energy into it, or anybody else who is sensitive to that aspect. To there's a Buddha teacher out there um, in, 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 in um, New Mexico, Chochum Alioni, I don't know her first name, she talks about this exactly, the women's mm-hmm. circling. 
But I, in your teaching, I didn't feel that at all. I feel you come a lot from, right, from all this. It's just when we read sometimes these books and it is really that male thing, and I forget about it. I just pull in what, what I know and what I hear for, from teachers like you, and then I don't struggle with that anymore. But there are women who really address that. Oh, good. Wow. So I think Wanda and I, and maybe a lot of other people, would really appreciate being put in touch with that. So, so, yeah. But you are in touch with it. <laughs> well, I could be more in touch with it. <laughs> and I and I guess where all of this the this was brought up was again wondering about the. Even the paradigm that you present for enlightenment is a progressive it is. thing. And that's, it's not so much the male-female, it's not so much all that that, that that I was questioning about. It was sort of the progressive nature of it. And, and there is a change, even mm-hmm. though it is being represented mm-hmm. as, a, as an ultimate view mm-hmm. and, and an ultimate energy, what we're calling that. There is a sort of progressive... Mm-hmm. Um, Yes, there is. There's a progression to it, but also the underlying it is a is a, a sort of a different theme, which is what the uh, the embryonic Buddha nature within us provides. The idea that you know we are already the fully enlightened being. So in a way, although we still go back to the linearity when we talk about the removing of the afflictions and, and the revealing of that. But it is nice the way it brings that that nonlinear immediacy to it. We are already enlightened. We just don't know it yet. <laughs> so, You're yeah. welcome. Thank you. Thank you for bringing that up and, and giving me at least a new direction to explore more fully. So. I had a question about karma. Yeah. Um, and what we were talking about yesterday in terms of reincarnation, that you said, yes, that energy may return, but it may not return to that individual or that individual in the form of some type of an identifiable personality, but rather be dispersed among different mm-hmm. that, uh, yeah. different uh, beings. Uh, and, and I've been thinking about whether karma works that way. When, when, when we pass on, and that is the karma also redistributed among different people, or or or, or sentient beings? Do do does the individual still bear, let's say, the, the 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 negative karma that they have, or is that part of this collective that we all share in that in order to burn it off? I mean, mm-hmm. might some of us? Up to be burning off karma for someone else as part of benefit to the whole. Okay, these are these are different ways of conceptualizing it that may be more, that may be to a greater or lesser degree helpful. But you know, even the idea of uh, a reincarnated self is a way of conceptualizing it that leads to one specific positive outcome, which is that it provides a moral ground. If 
if all of your actions are going to be revisited on your head in the future, then it gives you uh, a basis for behaving in, a, in an ethical and moral way. And this is the basis of... Uh, in, in Buddhism as a religious system rather than as a, uh, uh, as a practice of, of uh, high-level virtuosos, then this is the role that it plays. And even giving that up, we can, we can come up with a lot of other conceptualizations to help serve uh, similar or different purposes. Um, but just to, just to take some fairly straightforward, obvious things that maybe can help us to get a little bit of a handle on the the same difference paradox. I mean, let's call it that. You know, if if the if the self that I think I am doesn't even exist, then obviously, you know, it can't inherit my karma in a future mm-hmm. incarnation. Right? Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So we so then who who or what does and what is the carrier of that karma? But, you know, one simple example, not a really good analogy, but it gives us an entry into this, is if you watch a wave moving across the ocean, do you know how waves work? Does everybody know how waves work? Not necessarily. Okay. When you look at a wave, like there's waves coming in. Way on the distance, you can pick one wave and you can watch it, and it moves and it moves and it moves in until it disappears on the shore or goes out of sight in the other direction or something like that. And it appears that it is one mass of water, you know, as one separate entity. But if you go and you, if you were to get into the water and see what's actually happening in the wave, the water doesn't move, or the individual water molecules actually might, well, they're sort of moving all around, actually. But if you took a big chunk of water molecules and you looked at them, when the wave passes, they kind of go in a little circle like that, in a little circle like that. And the wave that you see, as it moves, every instant it's made up of different water. The water does not move. The wave is a pattern of energy. And there's always different water involved in it. But there is an energy pattern, and that's what you see. Right? So that's something of the idea. The other thing, if you ever watched a rapidly flowing stream, and you'll see it'll come to form a little whirlpool and stand there, and it disappears. And then a little further down, there will be a whirlpool coming, and it disappears. Mm -hmm. Now, the whirlpool, while it's there, is just like the wave. It's different water. It's just a pattern of energy. What's even more interesting, though, is that pattern of energy can cease to be in the form of a whirlpool and then reemerge somewhere else and create a new whirlpool. So you have, in that particular example, you have not only the material substance being constantly replaced, but you have the same energy taking a particular form. The energy doesn't disappear, but it ceases to hold that form and that pattern, and then at a later time, it 
resumes there. And this is, this is, I think, a better analogy for what's happening mm-hmm. when, beings, uh, when beings come into existence as the five aggregates, mm-hmm. pass through their life, disappear, and then another being comes. Yes. But it inherits the energy. The, the energy, but more than that, it inherits the energy that has the particular capacity to create, once again, mm-hmm. a similar pattern to mm-hmm. what was there before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, too, if you've watched the stream, sometimes the energy of a whirlpool doesn't reemerge as one whirlpool, but as two or three. Right? And sometimes the energy of a whirlpool could turn into a wave, or if there's an obstacle, it could turn into uh, a standing wave that doesn't move with a big pit, whirling pit, on the other side of the obstacle. It's all the same energy, and it's never the same water. Wow. <laughs> it's just taking different forms. Um, so the, these are these are things from the realm of the physical world that might help us a little bit to grasp the mystery that that lies behind the appearance, you know, the appearance of a an entity, a self, you know, and to recognize that it's only a pattern temporarily sustained, and and the substance of it is constantly changing and it doesn't have a substantial existence ever. But the energy and the patterns can reemerge. It's all part of the whole, you know. It's, uh, and where do you define the edge of the whole? Is it this piece of river, bank to bank, the whole river, maybe all the water in the world, maybe the whole planet? Well, maybe a whole solar system that allows this kind of planet with water on it to make whirlpools, or where do you draw the line? But, but you know, so. Because the line is drawn by your mind. It doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. But everything that you do, and I think you can satisfy yourself of this, Everything you do that manifests in terms of material reality is has basically endless consequences, even though it may be difficult to see. But it, it has endless consequences, unforeseeable consequences. And although we normally see that, you know, if I make a noise, the noise dies away, but the energy of the vibrations, I can't know what effect they have in the future. And although it seems it dies away, uh, to go back to a hackneyed example, but when a butterfly flaps its wings in Hong Kong, can result in a thunderstorm in London. You know, we can't really see the consequences, and that's on the physical, material level. Everything is absolutely, totally interconnected causally. And then we feel like the mental thing is so confined. You know, my whole mental experience happens inside my head. If we examine that 
we can realize that that's not true either. That that your whole perception of what's going on here isn't just yours. There's it, it's shared with everyone else. And what's true on the physical level, I think that if you if you spend some time where you can satisfy yourself, that it's the same. That just as no action in the material world can ever be separated from the rest of materiality. So there is no thought or intention that arises in your mind that isn't likewise totally causally interconnected with the totality of whatever it is that we call mentality or mind. And so when we talk about karma, which is the way that we our minds condition themselves, a mind conditions itself, and that's karma, right? But if the mind is not separate any more than the matter is separate, then uh, that conditioning doesn't disappear when the uh, external components uh, uh, of that conditioning go their different directions. It continues in its own special directions. So, just as your physical actions have consequences beyond the aggregate of physical components, so do all of your mental actions have the same property of continuity. Um, and as your understanding, as your wisdom through direct experience grows and increases through this process that we've been talking about, this becomes clearer and it becomes less of an intellectual exercise and more of an aha realization of, well, of course. John, I just want to say, um, just from I, I've um, been listening to your Dharma talks now for mm-hmm. a lot of years, and it um, one of the things that you've said over and over is how difficult it is uh, for us to understand anatta and um, and dependent origination. I, for me, has always been my modeling, but this piece that you've put together comes closest, and I, it's just like so, thank you so much for the time and effort. You're welcome. Yeah. I guess I'll do some more of that. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Oh, please do. Yeah. Oh, we got another 50 minutes to kill. <laughs> how you teach and how you make it applicable. Yeah. More and more, this is really, really helpful and wonderful. I have a, a small question to um, when you talked earlier about the part of the unconscious mind who makes, which makes the decision before we consciously make that. How is that, and if. Uh, is, is it in any way related to intuition, or what is intuition? It is very much related to 
Intuition. Okay, so the question, the question is, uh, speaking about the the way that decisions and intentions will emerge from uh, unconscious mental processes, uh, is this related to intuition? And it is very much, and and that's a really good thing for us to talk about because, um, as human beings. We have all of the uh, conscious, discursive, analytical, intellectual thinking that we do. And this is a very important part of, of, of what we are and how we do things. Another component that we have is the emotional. You know, we're equipped with all of these different emotions. and. Um, uh, some are very positive and wholesome, and some can have, um, some are less so, and can have other kinds of results. And then what we have is what, what we refer to as intuition, and uh, it means uh, to know from inside. And it basically, I think when we say intuition, uh, don't you naturally mean this is where, this is not something that you, Intuitive understanding or intuitive movements of the mind are the ones that aren't the result of conscious, analytical, discursive thinking, right? They come from some deeper unconscious level. You have a feeling about somebody, or you have a a feeling about whether you should do something or not, you know? Uh, it's, It's something that comes from inside, you don't quite know where its, where its origins are, but it provides you some guidance. And let me point out to you that it's very similar, your worldview, the way you automatically see things and the way you automatically respond to things. This is also a, has that same flavor of intuition, right? So we can intellectually examine what's presented to us and analyze it and draw conclusions about it. But most of the time, we don't. We intuitively interpret what the circumstances we're in and and the way we react to it. So what this, what we're calling intuitive, uh, do you see that it's the same thing that we're calling you know, the mental processes that are taking place outside of the view of conscious awareness. That's basically what they are. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would suggest to you that if this is your mind, the part of mental processes that you are actually conscious of is like this tiny little <laughs> sliver up at the top. Mm-hmm. And everything else is beneath the surface of consciousness. You know, and it can rise into consciousness and it can affect what's going on in consciousness. Uh, and it does, constantly. If we look at our, our so-called rational intellectual processes and we see how we can rationally arrive at different conclusions at different times from the same information or different people can arise at different, arrive at different conclusions. 
we realize that, aha, even those rational processes are taking place in consciousness are being influenced by something at this deeper level where the intuitive arises. And so, in a sense, all of the most important stuff that's going on is at this deeper level. If you really want to change the way that you see the world and see yourself, and the way you respond to circumstances, uh, the way you uh, react to things, the kind of uh, uh, emotional responses you have to things, all the changes that you're going to have to make are at this deeper level. But every experience you have and every thought you have gets incorporated into that invisible collection down there. And, and that's where it's generating all the results. Yet, all that you have to work with is this little sliver at the top. And so you've got to make the absolute best of that. Um, another way to describe making the absolute best of the little small part of your mind that is available to conscious awareness is called the practice of mindfulness. <laughs> it's a cultivation of mindful awareness and the practice of mindful awareness. All of the stuff that's going on at the intuitive level uh, can benefit by having the light of mindful awareness shown clearly upon the the processes that take place and the results that they uh, produce. And that's what you need to do. The way that you can change your unwholesome patterns of behavior. And this is one of the things that Buddha told us about. He said, when I was only a bodhisattva, I examined my mind. And I found that I had two different kinds of thoughts, some of which were wholesome and beneficial uh, and uh, brought me towards nirvana, and others that were uh, unwholesome, of no benefit to me or to others, in fact, that caused suffering to me and to others and that did nothing to bring me towards nirvana. And what were those three kinds of thoughts? Well, amongst the unwholesome thoughts, I found that there were all of these thoughts that were rooted in, in desire, in greed, in lust. And I thought, saw that there were another kind of thought that was rooted in uh, aversion, ill will, hatred, dislike. And then I saw that there was still another kind of thought that was rooted in the, uh, the unconcern uh, and in the ability to cause harm and injury to others through, uh, through, through the failure to recognize and understand the impacts of the actions that were being taken. 
On the other hand, I found that there were these wholesome thoughts. They were rooted in generosity, in uh, loving kindness. And these were the ones that opposed those that were rooted in, uh, in desire and greed and lust. And then I saw that I had these thoughts that were rooted in in, in patience and understanding and compassion, and that that these were opposed to those thoughts that were rooted in ill will and hatred and aversion. And then I saw that I had these thoughts that were rooted in mindful awareness of the consequences of my actions and concern for others, and that these stood in opposition of those that were harmful to others and uh, were the act- and led to actions that were taken uh, with no concern for the the consequences and impacts on others. And he said, "So what I did is I practiced being mindfully aware of unwholesome thought of the different kinds of unwholesome thoughts when they arose, and I would practice setting aside." those unwholesome thoughts. And then when I had succeeded in setting aside those unwholesome thoughts, I would succeed, would, would attempt to cause the arising of their wholesome counterparts to take their place. So, in doing this, you're using that little sliver of conscious capacity that you have to alter the patterns of behavior that arise out of this great unconscious collection of uh, influences that we have. The same thing that happens when we're taught the Dharma and we look at these difficult ideas like that the self we think we are is an illusion and that the world that we think we know is only a concoction of our mind and that it's not what we think it is. And we can, up in this conscious realm, we can use our discursive capacity, our analytical analytical capacity, our intellectual capacity to understand that as well as we can. And that will have some small effect on the worldview that arises out of our mistaken impressions. But even better, if we practice mindfulness so that we can see in all of those occasions where the world where life presents us the opportunity to see indeed there is the, the self that you think you are is not there. Indeed, things are not as you think they are, but they are the way your mind makes them. If you can practice mindfulness to verify the intellectual conclusions over and over again, all of the experiential validations of your intellectual conclusions will render a much more dramatic change in this unconscious process. And you will find your worldview changes. And the more your worldview changes, the easier it is to perceive emptiness and no self. And the easier it is to make the kind of positive changes that that you're, you're needing to make. In doing these things, in working on yourself, to become become the kind of person that you are when you've practiced the perfections of generosity and virtue, patience, uh, and have done so diligently, and when you practice 
the perfections of uh, right effort and uh, concentration. And the using your analytical capacity to understand. When you do all those things, you alter that big subconscious mass of who and what you are. You make it ready to undergo the transformation that brings you to a state of being, an enlightened being. So it's all about our, right now, as a worldling, uh, a person's intuition is not serving them very well. Because it is based on some mistaken notions and it is riddled with unwholesome conditioning. And so it is our intuitive level of functioning that we're seeking to transform. And we are transforming it. We're, we're literally pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps because the conscious being that we are only has that little part that's in the arena of conscious awareness to work with. And when we look at the problem that's constituted by this massive unconscious and this tiny bit of consciousness, we say, how most effectively can I utilize this? I need to develop my mindful awareness to the greatest degree possible. Then I need to apply my mindful awareness in the most effective way possible. you do that, you have, your intuition gets so much better. You begin to intuit that those obnoxious people are really not obnoxious people after all. They too are bodhisattvas in the making. They just are still afflicted a bit. Do you think we can change the world? We are. Why not? Why not? <laughs> We've got nothing to lose, right? Because, you know, you don't have to wait until you become a stream enter or a Buddha to be, to have less suffering in your life and more happiness, do you? And you don't need to wait till then till you have more wisdom either. I mean, it's all, you can have it right beginning right now. And with every day that goes by, you can have more of it. And um, the more of us that do that, and the, uh, you know, the, the more we're going to make other people say, you know, hmm, I like that. I'd like some of that too. So... So strive diligently for things change so rapidly and uh, we don't know how much time we have. I don't mean you don't know how much time you have. I mean the entire human race doesn't know how much time it has and we don't know. So 
There's not a moment to spare, really. So ask me another question. <laughs> well, is, is the real question, can we change the world? Or is the real question, are we changing the world? Well, since all there is is present. Yes. Yes, we're already changing the world, aren't we? Right. Yes, mm-hmm. we already are. So. Yes? This is not really a question, but you know, I started meditating when I was pretty young and have had several long hiatuses in the meantime. But I remember when I first started to meditate, I just thought it was so cool. I mean, it, you know, it, it uh, got rid of my headaches and, oh, you know, mm-hmm. I, I just thought it was fabulous. So I tried to tell everybody about it. Yeah. <laughs> well, it didn't work, you know. No, it doesn't. It didn't work at all. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I wanted my brother to start meditating, and you know, he just he resisted it. It was just I, everyone I, I told about it was it's sort of a resistance or an indifference or uh, oh that's nice and all that sort of thing. And, um, I'm not sure I ever influenced anyone positively to start meditating, right. but lately. I don't talk about it anymore. Mm-hmm. People start asking me about yeah. it. <laughs> I mean, my brother, who you know is an active alcoholic, um, several times has said, "But don't you meditate?" And you know, I don't tell him anything. <laughs> <laughs> and it makes him more curious. <laughs> so I was. I just, it's just sort of maybe not a question, but a warning that, you know, it, it's wonderful, but you can't necessarily tell people about it. You have to mm-hmm. sort of wait for them to come to you, mm-hmm. and they will. They, oddly enough, I mean, I'm just amazed when people show up and say, you've been meditating, what do you do, and what's it about? And, and um, you know, I, I'm glad to tell them, but yeah. I don't initiate it. Absolutely right. And thank you so much for for saying that. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm not saying that you should go out and proselytize. Because <laughs> we Buddhists do not proselytize. But we can sure be great examples and we can sure tantalize people and make them want to know what's going on with us. And that's what we should do. And and the best way to do that is just do the work on yourself so that uh, you know, it, and it's something you can't pretend. That's the other thing about it. You can't say, "Well, I'm gonna go out pretend to." And people, it, people won't be fooled. <laughs> They'll say, "Oh, yeah, so and so pretends that you now they're they've got it together now and they're enlightened, but I can see that they're not." But if you really are, then they're not fooled about that either. You know, it's not even about whether you're enlightened or not. It's it's that you've made genuine changes. When and you don't have to say anything. You don't even have to smile a lot. People can tell. <laughs> and they'll 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 know that you're doing something that uh, that's working. Yeah. Well, I think there there is a certain fear of people 
of you even and evangelizing her yeah. or proselytizing her, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I have friends who are definitely sort of a-religious and um, mm -hmm. they know I meditate. And occasionally I tell them things that have happened just because they're a good friend, but I feel in them sort of a fear and a resistance, mm -hmm. like I'm going to try and put this on them, that they, yeah. you know, they're going to feel some pressure that I think they should do it too. Mm -hmm. And it's really not at all what I'm doing. I'm just, you know, I have certain friends that I want to share experiences mm -hmm. with, you know, mm -hmm. and I'm just, uh, I don't know. It's hard to talk about your experience, and and I almost I almost think every time I've tried to, I've sort of regretted it. Unless, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. yeah. That's and uh, that's a a good thing to keep in mind. Don't don't try talking to somebody unless you're sure they're really interested. Yeah, and then that's that's the time to do it. And one thing that I've noticed, and I'm sure you've noticed as well. Very often, when you come across somebody that really wants to convince you of something, you know, <laughs> you've really got to try this, you know, have you noticed that it's really because they're not sure themselves? And if they think they can convince you or some other people, it will support their confidence in, in it. So it's an expression of doubt. And, and, and we know this, and so we tend to be a little bit suspicious when... You know, somebody comes and really wants to convince us of, of something, so. But we don't need to do that. And we're better, we're much better off not doing that. But, but a little bit what we were talking about is also the time has changed. I mean, the, the meditation is more mainstream now, and people want, you know, it's not like a mystical, oh God, elitier thing. When I started out, it was like, I'm running away from reality. Yes. Quote. Right. And now it's like, how do I do this better mm -hmm. in my reality when I do meditate, when people ask me? So this is about uh, also changing times right yeah. now. It's, it's coming yeah. up yeah. and people want to know. <laughs> you know so yes. It, that is a chance. Meditation is expanding. The awareness of it and practice of it is expanding really at an amazing rate. Mm -hmm. I'm amazed by how many meditation centers that there are in Tucson. And it's not just meditation, it's specifically Buddhist, the different forms of, of, of Buddhist tradition. So um, there's something very interesting happening, you know. Uh, don't know if I have the name right. I think it was uh, the historian Arnold Toynbee. Uh, there's a quote from him that he said uh, that the arrival of Buddhism in the West was going to be one of the events that uh, was most memorable events in the history of the future. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's true, and I hope it's true, because it is, as far as I can tell, it's the antidote we need for the disease that we're suffering from. And uh, it, it needs to be, it needs to take on a new form that's appropriate to our society and our people. It also needs to become, it needs to become widespread. I mean, we really need to become a society with enlightenment uh, oriented values. Uh, 
people who live their life uh, based on the principles that lead to uh, to uh, a much more genuine and lasting happiness than the principles that they operate on now. And uh, that's that's certainly what I hope to see happening. But for that to happen, you know, the way Buddhism is in most countries, um, there's a popular religion, and and then there's the uh, uh, then there's the virtuosos locked away in their monasteries, being supported by uh, people who give the monastery money to create merit, so that maybe they can get lucky and come back and become a monk, right? So, what we need is a lot of lay people who uh, work with other lay people. It needs to become the mainstream, the mainstream values, and the mainstream practice. Yeah. Well, I would. Um, um, I deal with all kinds of people in what I do, and some of them tend to be um, fundamentalist Christians. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't dare tell them that yeah. I that I have Buddhist leanings. <laughs> right. <laughs> I just, I mean, I, I don't know if I'm a Buddhist yet, but I definitely do Buddhist practice, and I, I you know, I pretty much um, believe everything that that said um, in the Buddhist practice, and uh, so I mean, how do you deal with people like that besides just never telling them? But, um, you know, I, I'm unsophisticated enough to still be sensitive to their centers. Mm-hmm. And then the whole thing of, you know, that it's the work of the devil. And, um, you know, I have a hard time with that because I do have a Christian upbringing, mm-hmm. you know. And um, it's hard for me to entirely, you know, deep inside of me let go of, of all that. Mm-hmm. The trappings, the, the ideation, all of that. It's, Pretty deeply ingrained. Anyway, maybe you could talk about that. I, I'm not quite sure exactly what the question is, but how to um, feel better about being Buddhist and yet having some Christian leanings and um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, as far as that particular part of it, how to feel better about uh, being Buddhist, even though you have. Christian background. This is a kind. This is part of the work that you have to do on yourself by uh, positively reinforcing your confidence that the Buddhist views that you're learning are are valid and are genuine. And at the same time, you have to uh, look at those things that you've brought from your your Christian background and say, okay, in what sense are these valid and in what sense are they not? And and by clearly seeing the sense in which they may be distortions and they may, you know, as the Buddha's advice to the Kalamas went, to the extent that what you've carried with you from your Christian background is not doesn't meet those criteria and is not conducive to the well-being of yourself and others, seeing that clearly makes it easier to let it go. 
But it's not a question of abandoning those things altogether. It's trying to see, you know, is there is there a valid and positive aspect to this? You know, is there something in this that's worth holding on to? You know, the idea that if you sin, you're going to be punished in hell, uh, and uh, Satan's out there working in every way to tempt you into sinning. It's kind of hard to see where there's much useful in that. But some of the other Christian doctrines, uh, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Um, and, and there's many others like that. that they're definitely valid, and they're definitely good. So, you know, you can recognize and, and, and accept those. You do the work on yourself to clear up your own problems. When you are confronted by people who have, you know, very strong fundamentalist beliefs, of course, um, to a certain degree, you practice uh, what the Buddha said about right speech, is you look at anything you're about to say, and is it true, is it helpful, and is it necessary? And if it doesn't meet those three criteria, you keep your mouth shut. You know? <laughs> but the occasion may arise when there's something that you can say that meets those criteria, and then that's the, that's the time to speak. And the best thing to do is, as I say, is become, become an example through the success in your own practice. And we've all got to not be attached to the outcomes, too, you know. Um, it might not work out, you know. That's all right, too. <laughs> What's important is, the, is that we do our best. And as I'm hoping to point out to you, that if you do your best to work for your own liberation, only good can come from it, no matter what. Only good can come from it. And if you work for your own liberation for the sake of all other beings, you only increase the probability of your success and you increase the amount of good that can come from it. So, and yes, you know, so just accept, you know, to learn to love the fundamentalist who you know uh, thinks that, that you are the victim of Satan's worst machinations and he has you in his clutches, you know, uh, and still be able to love them and accept them for where they are, you know, that's good practice. That's really good practice. You know, uh, a lot of you know Allegra, who lives with us, and she's a practicing Buddhist. And my mother is also living here. And my mother is a Christian who tries to be very accepting of my Buddhism. But the other day, she gave Allegra a book that opened to a page talking about how the Buddhists and the Hindus have the whole thing all wrong. That's all right. That's where she's at. <laughs> she does her best to accept me, and I, I, I love her for that, even though there's a part of her that can't quite accept this. So. She worries about your poor soul. <laughs> I'm sure she does. <laughs> and 
I'm so thankful for that because I quit worrying about it a long time ago. <laughs> Somebody's got to do it, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. mainstream Buddhism happening. Um, when I started uh, to, to be trained in yoga 30 years ago, it was a spiritual practice, which it is. Mm-hmm. And I have seen through those 30 years how that spiritual practice has become. It's just an exercise. Yes. And I wonder sometimes where, because it's more in mainstream, how, what, how do you see those changes? How can you counterbalance those changes when you talk about Buddhism becomes mainstream, which is great, but how do you protect it from being diluted and become just just a piece of what it originally is? Well, it's the same answer. The best way to counteract that... Oh, 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 sorry. The the question is that you saw how yoga, which is a spiritual path in its origins and which came to this country and 23 years ago began to take root and it has ceased to be a spiritual path and it's become a kind of exercise, mm-hmm. yes, which is yes, a very popular kind of exercise. Um, and so you're asking, how do we keep the same thing from happening to Buddhism? And the answer is the same thing. By those of us who understand that Buddhism is more than a way to improve your ability to cope with stress and your productivity at work and to lower your blood pressure and to have better relationships and to work through some of our neurosis. For those of us to see that it's more than that and to practice that, we will hopefully not just keep the flame alive but spread it by being an example. Uh, the same thing is happening in Buddhism that happened with yoga. Mm-hmm. We have uh, some huge and very influential meditation centers, and you know, uh, and this is not faulting them at all because it's it's wonderful what they have done, but they have turned insight meditation into more of psychotherapy than it is a spiritual path. You know, it's a way of doing work on yourself and dealing with your neurosis and things like that. And that's good, you know, that's good. But it's more than that. And just as yoga is more than a way to make your body strong and flexible and healthy. And we don't want, we don't want that part to get lost. Mm-hmm. So, um, <clears throat> there is... There's a good side and a bad side to it because people are drawn to meditation because of the worldly benefits that it has, the immediate worldly benefits. You know, young guys take up meditation because they get to go out with girls that are in the meditation. I mean, that happens a lot, right? <laughs> and that's all right because it gives them the opportunity to discover how much more there, there might be. The bad side is that, you know, it can become, like unfortunately in many cases yoga has become, uh, so much of a worldly thing that, uh, I mean, there's yoga centers that are careful 
not to mention anything about uh, to divorce themselves yeah. because they are businesses that make money and people depend on their income and they don't want to say anything that's going to cause the fundamentalist Christians to not you know to give up their membership in the yoga center right yep. So. Yeah, the money they charge also is another thing, you know, those centers now, it's like, it's the opposite of Buddhist teachings, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of what you have to pay for a weekend. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's ridiculous in some level. Well, that's true, and, and that's, uh, you know, and I don't, I don't know necessarily the answer to that, but it's something that, you know, uh, as a as a teacher leading meditation retreats, you know it, it's something that we have to struggle with. Where do we find a suitable place to do a retreat? If you go to a place that is a retreat center, uh, it has to make enough money to support the people that own it and make it more worthwhile for them to operate it as a retreat center than to turn it into something else, you know. And there's some really wonderful retreat centers that they're really struggling, you know, and it's like the cost per day of doing retreats gets higher and higher. Last time I checked, you know, sort of across the board, the average price for a meditation retreat is about 60 to $75 a day with some high-end fancy places that are more expensive and a few places that are less expensive. And the price keeps going up and you look at it and say, $60 a day, well, wow, that's a lot of money. You know, if you get X number of retreats times $60, look at all the money that's coming in. But if you actually talk to the people that are running those places, they're not sure they can continue. They're not making the money they need. I don't know whether this will be available for your retreat next year or not, because we don't know whether we're going to survive. It is a problem. It is a real problem. And that's, and that's a problem that's way short of the level of where, you know, uh, my meditation retreat center is so uh, successful, you know, I can't afford to do or say anything that will decrease the enrollment because then how am I going to send my daughter to Harvard and buy the new Mercedes that I need? <laughs> We're a long ways from that. <laughs> but it is, a, it is a problem. And as we need to solve all those problems if we're going to be able to get together and, and do retreats and if we're going to make them open so that people of all degrees of financial capability can participate. And part of that is the uh, practice of generosity so that those of us who find ourselves in a position to uh, to contribute more so that those with less can still have the opportunity to practice. That's what needs to happen. And if enough of us do that, maybe we can avoid getting into the situation of, you know, I, some of these big retreat centers I talk about, you know, they're more like, you know, going on a retreat's more like a luxury resort vacation that involves a certain amount of sitting. <laughs> and that's all right, too. I'm not saying there's something necessarily inherently intrinsically wrong with that. But that is part of the marketing, you know. And 
I, I deal with that too. There are some very wealthy people that attend the retreats that we do in California. And in order to keep the cost as low as possible, we use a place that's donated by a temple and it's very, very simple accommodations and crowded quarters and, and uh, people have to, you know. And of course, very wealthy people are used to comfortable accommodations and everything being looked after. What's that? They freak out. They freak out. That's what exactly what happens. They freak out. They get to work through some good stuff in there. Right? <laughs> anyway, I'm getting kind of off topic here. Uh, and we're getting to the very last few minutes that we have together. So, just I'd better turn it back over to you and see what questions you have and what things we need to talk about. Your brains are full. <laughs> yeah? Well, here it is again. Um, so you <laughs> believe in the Buddhist path, but you haven't committed, you haven't taken the precepts. I mean, how do you decide to commit and take the precepts? Or, um, I mean, do you have to commit and do, take the precepts, or can you just keep meditating and have a teacher and... Um, You know, I, as part of me says taking the precepts is part of a religion. Um, saying you're a Buddhist is part of a religion. Whereas, if it's true, then it'll be true whether I say I'm a Buddhist or not. And um, so there's that. And then um, the decision to actually become a Buddhist versus not being a Buddhist but doing the same thing. Very good question. Okay. And so what you're saying is how important is it to engage in a formal ritual or ceremony of taking refuge and taking precepts and declaring yourself a Buddhist? Because you could use the precepts and follow the precepts in your life and you could pursue the training and study the Dharma without ever engaging in a formal ceremony and you could likewise do the practice without ever formally announcing you know I am a Buddhist and this kind of goes back to Bob's question of what is the value of rites and rituals and things like that I, many people find it very helpful to do a ritual or a ceremony to formally uh, take refuge and take precepts. It consolidates something in their mind to do that. And it's very helpful. It maybe gets them off the fence if they've been on the fence. It doesn't necessarily mean any of those things. You, you know, there's no reason why you need to do that. Uh, maybe you're not ready, and maybe someday you will. Maybe, as time goes by, and the more you practice, 
the more clearly irrelevant some superficial act like that will become. On the other hand, you might come to the point where you feel like that it's going to be very helpful to you and you want to do that. And, and you want to make the formal declaration that, well, I, I am a Buddhist. The same thing beyond uh, just taking refuge and taking the, the five basic precepts uh, are that, you know, I, I said that for a person who, uh, th- those people who are really interested in pursuing this for the sake of enlightenment, make a much greater commitment to it. You know, they commit their whole lives to it. And some people, in order to do that, they find it helpful to take uh, a further set of precepts and to make a formal declaration that they are a dedicated lay practitioner. Still others will give up everything and take up robes. That doesn't mean that any individual person has to do any of that, but it's there for you to, to be helpful to you and to use. Now, whether you formally take precepts, ceremonially or not, the keeping of the precepts as a practice, as a, a mental training, and as a way of making absolutely essential transformations in, in your personality and in yourself, that will allow you to succeed. That's something that you do need to do. You you cannot uh, you whether you do it formally or not. If you think that you can neglect <coughs> the practice of virtue and the keeping of precepts, not for the sake of precepts, but for the sake that keeping them has on on you, then you're mistaken. You 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 will not. You will not be able to proceed very far without that. But formally, that is up to you. If it doesn't feel right to you, don't do it. When it does feel right to you, do it. Well, I don't, I don't know if it's some sort of misplaced arrogance or feeling of independence or something, but I, it's hard for me to um, say I'll be part of this Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is exactly, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know what it is. Uh, yeah. But another thing is, as a teacher, if um, if someone has taken the precepts and um, declared themselves a Buddhist, I mean, do you take them more seriously? Do you work with them more? Or, I mean... No, I, I take everybody seriously. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's not in in terms of that it's not going to make any difference to me as a teacher whether you formally take in uh, refuge and precepts or not. But there is a certain obligation that I feel if you take the the more advanced precepts of uh, of a of a dedicated lay practitioner part of that ceremony is a commitment that we make to each other. And I value that, and I respect that, and I'll do my best. So, uh, I will feel like I need to be more available to you, and I need to provide more guidance. I have a limited amount of time available, right? And, and energy. Um, 
And if I know that a person has made that kind of commitment, you know, they've basically said, you know, I'm making this my life, and everything else in my life is going to be secondary to this. And if I'm the one that carries out the ceremony in which they make that commitment, then I want to support that in every way that I can. So there is that difference. But, I, you know, I, as far as the other part goes, I take everybody as seriously, I do everything that I can to, uh, to help them and answer their questions, and to respect where they're at, you know. Uh, I'll help you in any way I can, even if you're just in this for the stress reduction and a little bit of personal psychotherapy. I'm going to help you as much as I can to reduce your stress and solve your problems, you know. Uh, okay. Oh, it's one o'clock. I hope you've enjoyed this as much as I have. I really sincerely have. You know, uh, and I, I hope it's been helpful to you. Uh, I hope it's been inspirational. Because you have certainly inspired me to keep on doing this. I thank you all for the positive feedback that you've given me. And, of course, I welcome any critical comments that you may have as well. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.